This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Ahoy, ahoy. What are we talking about this evening, Puka? We are talking about some spoopy inspirations for Changeling the Dreaming, drawn from novels, short stories, and other literature. Fiction. We should also point out that we are entirely unprepared for this episode, but we're doing it anyway. Yes, because we do. It's october and we should do something like this yeah things like this yeah sit back and have fun yeah maybe get a little bit scared well but like you know a reasonable amount of scared slower level scared Mm -hmm. not red cap level scared we should also point out what we are not covering in this episode is outright horror works that are classified as such we're kind of more on the dark fantasy, uncanny, dark fairy tale side of things for this. And we're also trying not to cover ghost stories because that's more the purview of Wraith. We will be hopefully having a Wraith crossover episode in the near future for this October season. But for tonight, we're just sticking with some classics. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know, Josh, are you familiar with the uncanny as a concept? I think I am, but why don't you fill me in just in case? (laughs) Well, so many, many years ago, in the year 2000, I took a course on modern literary fantasy in college where we had to read Freud's essay, The Uncanny, or Das Unheimlich in German. And basically, um, what that essay kind of sets up as the uncanny, it takes the familiar and makes it unsettling. So everyday things that suddenly change and are off-putting. So not outright horrifying. You know, it's not monsters popping out of the ground and stuff. It's suddenly your family member is no longer your family member. Or suddenly that building that you know so well seems completely foreign. And it's a very psychological kind of horror because it's questioning your own reality and becoming uncertain about your own identity those sorts of things, which to me is a very changeling kind of horror. You know, it's not the, I am a monster kind of horror of vampire or the darkness is consuming the world horror of werewolf. This is a very personal and very on the edge of perception kind of mood. And then Freud, you know, linked it to things like castration and what all the other stuff that he was obsessed with. So I leave that part out. Anyway, the essay is freely available and perhaps it will be linked in the show notes so that's that's my definition i don't know how that squares with your idea of it i think that squares pretty good yeah it's the i've also heard descriptions of creepy being similar to this like it's the not necessarily a thing you can completely put your finger on very easily at least for the build-up but things aren't right things aren't quite what you're expecting there's also often this element of the protagonist or the, the narrator of the story being the only person who seems to realize something is amiss mm-hmm. or in general that 
the world seems to accept the presence of the uncanny, even though it seems like it shouldn't. And there's lots of, we're looking at the literary aspects of this, but you also see this in things like film. One of the ones Mm -hmm. that I think of sometimes is a film like Annihilation, where the protagonists encounter these animals that have been like spliced, but they're still part of the ecosystem. You know, it's not like these monsters that have been created are out of place. They're integrated into the world. And it's only when the protagonists from outside the area where this is happening enter that zone that they say, oh, this is totally weird and messed up. That aspect of displacement, I think, is a key characteristic as well. And you hear it referred to in things like when people talk about the uncanny valley, for example. Yeah, where something looks human, where where you make something that's like you're trying to make something human-like and you get close, but not quite. So it's not cutesy like a robot. We think it was a robot. And it's not like fully human-like. If it's almost human-like, it's, it's, it's creepy. It's disturbing. It's uncanny. There's a theory that the reason that happens, because it is very instinctive, like it's just a visceral reaction people have. But there's been the suggestion that it's a reaction to, um, to seeing a corpse, which is... Mm almost but not quite human and in the same way seeing something that's very lifelike but that you recognize as not human is deeply deeply unsettling i haven't heard that one that explanation but that makes sense yeah and it's like certain kinds of puppets and and very lifelike robots so things like that okay so what story did you want to highlight there puka well so the first is a collection of short stories from the 19th century by eta hoffmann and this is primarily what Freud was basing his analysis of the uncanny on. There's actually this whole trend of sort of German fairy tales, literary fairy tales from the Romantic era in the 19th and maybe early 20th century. And they're not set in fantasy, you know, distant times or anything like the Grimm fairy tales. They were often contemporary. They were ordinary people put into these circumstances that were deeply unsettling. So one of the classic stories by Hoffmann is The Sandman. It's the narrator is talking about as a child, he was afraid of the Sandman, which was the boogeyman who who they said went around stealing the eyes of children. So in Freud's conception, it's like, oh, the fear of losing your sight or going blind became this fairy tale. But you could also just read it as in, in changeling terms hey, maybe there really is this evil thalane or whatever that goes around taking children's eyes. But so as a child, he meets this family friend who he's convinced is the Sandman. And it's kind of like his father, I think, sickens and dies or something. It's been a while since I've read it. But he ends up attempting to murder the family friend because he has this psychotic break and the, the friend appears to be supernatural in some way. So perhaps it is the actual Sandman. There's also a piece with the narrator as an adult, which connects to that Uncanny Valley concept because he falls in love with this woman who, again, uncanny, there's a lot of uncertainty. She may or may not be a clockwork automaton created by the friend of his father's. And so he's kind of like, he has to steal her away. So there's that aspect as well. And there's a lot of focus on her eyes as well. There's the theme of eyes being stolen is the thread that kind of runs throughout and that visceral fear of the Sandman stealing one's eyes. So it's kind of, it's unclear whether 
the narrator is just mad or whether this actually is some kind of liminal figure that's come to steal his eyes you know other ones that he wrote there's one called the mines of falun and falun is this town in sweden where there were centuries old copper mines and sort of uh the things one finds in the depths of the earth so there's mysterious figures who dwell down there that the miners encounter And there's a bunch of other unsettling fairy tales in these collections. I like them because they fit with the idea of fairy tales, not necessarily as just these folkloric things that are handed down orally, but also things that can be written in a literary way. So there are certain themes and certain constructions which the authors use to kind of create that same feeling that you would get from cinderella or snow white or one of those other classics often work very well so so that's my uh, first one yeah so mine i'm gonna do uh uh the short story the telltale heart by edgar Allan poe and there's lots of great example poe stories for this like he's kind of in a sense created the genre in a sense of if there's a spoopy genre spoopy genre if you yeah. could argue the Telltale Heart, though, it definitely it plays with the uncanny in a few different ways. It, it's uh, for people who aren't familiar with it. You have a the narrator who's never named. He has an old man that he lives with as a roommate who has a cataract. Not that it's described that way, but it's a cataract. And the narrator is a very jumpy, suspicious, over anxious, very anxious person. It says even though he says, "Oh, the old man's great," he thinks it's like this eye is evil, and it's just he's like trying the whole story is told after the fact i'm trying to justify what he does here and he like keeps thinking that the old man's evil he starts like shining this light onto the evil eye he like shines light up while the old man's sleeping sees that he's you know hears his heartbeat and all this and whatnot and he goes it's important he's hearing the heartbeat and he kills him dismembers the body hides it under the floorboards and the police suspect nothing, everything's good, but he's like still hearing that heartbeat. You could hear from these like more and more. And it, there's like the police are around investigating it, but they don't think they don't suspect him. He's buried him under the floorboards. And eventually he's just snaps and it's like, oh, you can hear it. It's under the floorboards. It's a beating heart. So spoiler. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's in pop culture to the point that they've parodied it on The Simpsons. So I feel like, you know. Yeah. Spoilers at this point are, yeah. Yeah, it's a almost 200-year-old story <laughs> that's been in pop culture. Wow, it really is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah. And I mean, that that yeah, that does play into the candy here. It seems like the Slua, like, it's the kind of thing a Slua might engineer mm-hmm. towards him. So. Definitely. Yeah. And a lot of post stories are... are have similar sort of moods to them. So any mm-hmm. any collection of Poe, when I was growing up, we had the complete works of Poe, my siblings and I, and we just kind of passed it around because it was like, oh, it's so spoopy. Yeah, there's there's so many stories that are in that vein of his. And poems mm-hmm. too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So for my next one, a much more recent book, Black Leopard Red Wolf by Marlon James. And this is maybe my favorite book of the last few years. It is incredibly well-written, incredibly engaging. 
I have not yet read book two in the trilogy because I've been waiting for it to come out with soft cover, but I look forward to that as well. But essentially, this is an epic fantasy set in a pre-colonial Africa and drawing on lots of folklore and lots of tropes and mythemes from African culture. It's a very queer novel. The protagonist's sexuality and gender and orientation are all kind of very fluid in this novel. It's incredibly vulgar and incredibly gory. So the reason I'm including it is because it does have all of these scenes that are very nightmarish and lots of monsters in it that could be considered almost like evil fairies. Good inspirations for Thaline. So here's the blurb. Tracker is known for his skills as a hunter. He has a nose, people say. Hired to find a mysterious boy who disappeared, Tracker breaks his own rule of always working alone when he finds himself part of a group assembled to search for the boy. The band is a hodgepodge, full of unusual characters, including a shape-shifting man-animal known as the Leopard. As Tracker follows the boy's scent, he and the band are set upon by creatures intent on destroying them. As he fights for survival, Tracker starts to wonder, who really is this boy? Why has he been missing for so long? And perhaps most important, who is telling the truth and who is lying? So you have crossover options with other games as well. You have a Bastet character, for example. It's an incredible book. I can't recommend it enough. It's long, so if you don't like long novels, you should buy it and read it anyway, because it moves very quickly. And it's not always spooky or eerie in the same way, but there are definitely scenes that are just straight out of nightmare. Probably should have a content warning on the cover but it doesn't so. the next one i'd actually give is it might sound a bit odd for what we're doing here because there's no supernatural relevance but i think it is a good inspiration for changeling would be misery by stephen king it's about a, an author who writes victorian era romance novels about someone named misery that he sort of got sick of writing it so he kills her off and gets into a car accident in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. And then he's rescued by someone named Annie, who's like a nurse and is a huge fan of his. And you sort of learn over time, like at first it's like, okay, he doesn't like her. And he's like, oh, he's, there's all these excuses for why she can't, you know, get him to a hospital. He, oh, by the way, he also has a manuscript with him for like his total separate series after he's killed off misery and whatnot. And she ends up reading it and it's just getting more and more. You start realizing more and more that this is that she's like doing things like continuing to keep his legs broken and messing with his medication and all that type of thing. And she's end up manipulating him into writing a new misery novel, a new misery novel, bringing her back to life. And then like, you know, it just starts escalating and escalating and escalating from there. And it's very much a, you know, you have someone who's like a writer, but he's not happy with what's happening and then it's essentially it's almost like an autumn person type story where she's like no i want you to do the thing that she's going very extreme wanting him to just continue writing a book series that all this creativity is sapped out of it and it feels very sort of changed like that way like a ravaging type situation or very extreme version of ravaging yeah yeah and or the autumn sheaf law of adoration oh yes that too yeah or yeah he's he's this you know, glamorous person that she's, you know, you pick up stalkers from that. But it definitely has, it has an interplay of banality and glamour, I think, going through it with art, but art that you don't want to make and has nothing to it, you know, no 
creative drive for it. But yeah. Yeah. I, I mentioned this earlier when we were discussing this episode, but I'm slightly ashamed to admit I've never read Stephen King. So I think this is a very good novel. I think it's worth reading this one. I've read some of his other stuff. You know, he's a skilled writer, but this one felt personal to him. I think. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, he's he's it's about a writer. <laughs> it's about he's a writer, kidding. and and he's well known for having had car crashes. So yeah, like... and creepy stalker fans, and yeah. And I mean, I've seen lots of adaptations of his work. Just I've never sat down and read a Stephen King novel. I think I've probably read a short story or two here or there. But mm-hmm. he's yeah. also famous for not liking his adaptations. So that's true, with a couple notable exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, Misery is one of the few books that actually had me, like when I was reading it, quite scared, actually, at one point. Yeah. Well, and I mean, at some point we'll do, we can talk about films, but like The Shining as as mm-hmm. a film is a great, again, maybe more on the Wraith side than the Changeling side, but that descent into madness aspect is definitely part yeah. of the, the Changeling wheelhouse. Something to talk about when we have our Wraith crossover episode. Mm-hmm. Well, so the next one that I will talk about is the debut novel by China Mieville, King Rat. And this is from the late 90s. It is very much a late 90s novel. It's sort of a cross between, for any Neil Gaiman fans, it's kind of like a little bit of Neverwhere and a little bit of American Gods, because it takes place in London in the late 90s, and it's very the gritty underbelly of London. But then a lot of the characters are sort of gods and mythic figures of various sorts. So it came out between those two books, so it has elements of both. And I shall read the blurb. Something is stirring in London's dark, stamping out its territory in brick dust and blood. Something has murdered Saul Garamond's father and left Saul to pay for the crime. But a shadow from the urban waste breaks into Saul's prison cell and leads him to freedom, a shadow called King Rat. King Rat reveals to Saul his own royal heritage, a heritage that opens a new world for him, the world below London's streets. With drum and bass pounding the back streets, Saul must confront the forces that would use him, the ones that would destroy him, and those that have shaped his own bizarre identity. So it's kind of an in medias race sort of book in that it launches you into the action pretty straight away, kind of like Neverwhere does. And it's a little bit of a Ratkin book. So the protagonist, you could argue, is Ratkin kinfolk, King Rat shows up and says, hey, by the way, your mom was a rat. But I don't think, with my limited knowledge of werewolf, it doesn't read like a ratkin book to me. Essentially, he gets drawn into this literal underworld of these bizarre mythic figures, and he discovers these sort of powers that he has. So like, because he's part rat, he can eat anything. And at one point, he tests this by like eating this burger he finds in the trash, and he's like, oh my god, it's delicious. And they meet Anansi and other sort of vermin deities. And they're all trying to escape from this figure called the Ratcatcher, who it's suggested is the Pied Piper of Hamelin. So there's like those fairy tale elements kind of worked in. He's also very involved in the music scene. So you have his musician friends kind of get involved and help him out. So there's a little bit of similarity to the Emma Bull novel, War for the Oaks, that we talked about with our last book episode. But in that one, it's much more informed by like the folk rock scene. And this is much more the techno scene, the drum and bass music. Like drum and bass is this recurring theme that's running through the book. And it's very much of the time when it was written. It's really gritty. It's really street level 
urban dark fantasy, I guess one could call it. And China Mayville is one of my favorite authors. He has a, a wonderful way of writing, and this is a, a good introduction to his work. So, yeah. Yeah, I need to read stuff by... He's one of the many authors I need to read things by that I've... He's, he's really good. So, yeah, the next one is uh, Coraline by Neil Gaiman. And this is another story that does have a film adaptation, but talking about the book or the novella, I guess. It's officially a children's book. And yeah. the, uh, the thing about this is, is I've heard an interview with him. He had basically read it to his daughter and he thought she had liked it, but she was just trying to like appear brave and was actually quite terrified <laughs> by it. So he thought it was sort of kid appro- more kid appropriate than it was. Although it's, I wouldn't put it like a, absolutely terrifying horror novel either for at least for adults but it's up there in terms of kids books i think it's also a one of those good changeling analogs so it's about Mm -hmm. uh, Coraline jones who's 11 years old and she's just like many stories of kids this age just moved into a new house with her with her parents but it's a big old house and there's other people that live in other parts of the, the house too which are very weird characters that definitely also seem very Kithane. I, I yeah, I put it like as in this is this is almost like Coraline's dream dance. This story, mm-hmm. she ends. I'm not going to go through a full plot summary, but she ends up encountering another world. Basically, she, first she meets a talking black cat who takes her into this other world that's like a mirror image of this house with an other mother and other father. The uncanny thing is they look kind of like her parents, but they have buttons for eyes. And they end up, you know, kidnapping parents. It, it's very much like a, a fairy tale in terms of how she goes through and how she went, defeats things and being tricky and clever and all those type of things. Uh, there are ghosts in it too, but uh, that's not really the focus of the story as much. Other victims of the other mother. So it, it's just a very, yeah, it reads like, okay, she's going through her chrysalis <laughs> dream dance encountering all this stuff and then at the end comes out much more herself i'd say like she went into the story all nervous about what's going on and not happy with everything and not happy with her parents and comes out despite all this horrific stuff much happier for it i think (laughs) and if you did see the movie too it's also very uncanny looking what you're seeing there and i mean as we said last time there's so many neil gaiman texts that we could have chosen for this you know, yeah, talking about we, we could have done 10 Neil Gaiman inspirations for change. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. So one of the other ones that I just want to briefly mention is The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which I think kind of treats in similar themes. Instead of having family members, though, it's the, I guess, housekeeper who who's the uncanny figure who kind of comes in and exerts this very insidious control over the members of the household who the protagonist accidentally drew into our world from the dreaming is one way of putting it. Um, But it's that same childhood displacement kind of feeling. I don't know. It's, it's a theme he comes back to a lot in his work. And there's also the graveyard book, but the graveyard book is much happier by comparison. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. Lots of options. So the next one that I would like to drop in the recommendations list is The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. And there are a lot of collections, I think especially in the last like 10 or 20 years, 
a lot of collections that take traditional fairy tales and rewrite them through a more modern lens. So one of the ones that I was thinking of is um, My Mother, She Killed Me, My Father, He Ate Me, which includes a Neil Gaiman fairy tale, I believe. So it's an adaptation of the Juniper Tree fairy tale, and then it's all of these it's all these stories inspired by fairy tales, but through this gruesome lens. But I feel like Angela Carter really kicked that trend off. A lot of them are through a more feminist lens and kind of challenge a lot of the social constructions and racial dynamics and things that you find in a lot of the old tales from Europe. So I really enjoy it. I wanted to give an excerpt from the title story. So the bloody chamber is a reference to Bluebeard. And for anyone who doesn't know the story of Bluebeard, it's this young bride meets this rich nobleman who wants to marry her and she moves into his beautiful chateau but he's always like oh don't go into the, the forbidden room there's there's a role-playing game based on this that's oh called, great <laughs> called bluebeard's bride that's uh famous in certain circles yeah, yeah it's a very changeling fairy tale mm-hmm. and i think it was a charles perrault fairy tale so it wasn't like I actually don't know if he wrote it himself or if he adapted it from an existing story from the French countryside, but it is a French tale. Anyway, so there's this forbidden chamber and she goes in and finds the corpses of all of his former wives. So he's like a serial killer who marries and then murders his wives. So in this adaptation, it's set in modern times and there's references to Bluebeard in the story. The protagonist is Vietnamese... French, I think. And her mother is this very sort of strong matriarchal figure and kind of warns her, keeps an eye out for her. Like one of the things Angela Carter does is make women into the mentors and the heroes and everything. So, which is a nice inversion from the norm. But so I wanted to read this excerpt. As she is trapped in the chamber, she called her mother for help and she's trapped in the chamber with her husband and he has his sword and he's about to behead her and then her mother bursts in and it goes you never saw such a wild thing as my mother her hat seized by the winds and blown out to sea so that her hair was her white mane her black lyle legs exposed to the thigh her skirts tucked round her waist one hand on the reins of the rearing horse while the other clasped my father's service revolver and behind her the breakers of the savage indifferent sea like the witnesses of a furious justice and my husband stood stock still as if she had been medusa the sword still raised over his head as in those clockwork tableau of bluebeard that you see in glass cases at fairs and then it was as though a curious child pushed his centime into the slot and set all in motion the heavy bearded figure roared out aloud braying with fury and wielding the honorable sword as if it were a matter of death or glory charged us all three on her 18th birthday, my mother had disposed of a man-eating tiger that had ravaged the villages in the hills north of Hanoi. Now, without a moment's hesitation, she raised my father's gun, took aim, and put a single irreproachable bullet through my husband's head. So that's the kind of rewriting that takes place in these stories. It's very well written. Um, a lot of authors, including Neil Gaiman, I believe, have pointed to Angela Carter and this collection in particular as inspiration. So it seemed worth including. But a lot of the stories are gruesome and spoopy. Let's stick to our brief. So this next one that I'm going to be talking about is actually a fairly old story, but I think it's fairly well known. Macbeth by by Shakespeare. The Scottish play. The Scottish play, yeah. And it's fine if we say it, we're not in a theater. It's true. (laughs) 
so this story, oh, I'm not going to go through the plot summary of this one, but it, uh, you know, it's about Macbeth. He's given this a uh, little bit of background, a little bit of story. He comes across three witches who are all, they're definitely, I, I'd put them more on the changeling end than the mage end of things in terms of how they act. And give him like this prophecy that makes him believe that he's going to be king of Scotland. And then it's like his wife's Lady Macbeth's, like he hatches this plan sort of, and he's like with his wife and she's pushing him for him to, to uh, do some murders to end up, to end up the king, like killing off heirs and whatnot. And it just spirals out of control. There's a lot, it actually reminds a little bit of Telltale Heart in some ways of mm-hmm. just the way, like the justification and the, but ended up being undoing by your own guilt, madness, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's a great creepy and there's a lot of supernatural elements in it that fit with Changeling, I think. There are ghosts, but you know, there's ghosts in Changeling. There's this Lua talking to ghosts. There's go- ghosts connected to Changeling, but it's a lot of other stuff too with the and like fate and all that type of thing. But I think, I think it is a very dark changeling kind of story i think and good for courtly intrigue stories as well because you're never entirely sure yes so i think that's pretty much it It, you know it's a tragedy the main character does some terrible things and pays the price so does famously his wife yeah well so i have a very particular relationship with macbeth when i was a junior in high school in my british literature class our teacher the way that we did Macbeth was with a f- the finest toothed comb. And we spent, I think, six weeks just reading Macbeth every single day, usually five days a week. And we went scene by scene by scene. And she just had an exhaustive knowledge of like all of the little... I mean, she was a Shakespeare scholar. She knew all the ins and outs of the play and the Elizabethan context and everything. And I remember that the final assignment was 250 questions about the play each one you could answer as fully as you wanted so you could just do a few words or you could do a paragraph or whatever and i think i remember handing in a sheaf of 47 sheets of like handwritten loose leaf paper answering all those questions (laughs) i did get an a so you know okay but um but it was it was little things kind of speaking to this theme of the uncanny so like the opening scene of Macbeth is set on a heath. And that's where the witches say, you know, where, where shall we three meet again in lightning, thunder, or in rain? You know, they have their little, when the hurly burly's done, when the battle's lost. And won. I still have these lines burned into my memory. We had this extended discussion about how the heath, you know, that sort of wild moorland outside of civilized, settled areas, that was the place where you didn't go because that was where the witches lived. That was where ghosts lived. That's where people do unspeakable rituals to summon things and they're agents of chaos in a sense they manipulate to destabilize things like the monarchy or people's minds and so that that context would have just kind of been understood by the original audience of the play and so all of these scenes have a subtext to them which has a lot more room for to quote another Shakespeare play, more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. And that's, to me, something that Changeling encompasses. Changeling encompasses everything that isn't specified. All of the Mm -hmm. things that don't fit neatly into categories that you would find in the other games. 
I like Macbeth as an example of a text where those fringes of of the comprehensible are attended to. Yeah, it has witches, so there's a mage connection, and yeah, it has ghosts, so there's a wraith connection, but thematically, it does feel mm-hmm. like a very dark changeling story to me. And, and the, the witches and the wraith are very... If you are running a changeling chronicle, this is a way of including ages. Yeah, that's race. that's how to cross them over. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're 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 very changeling tinted. Yeah. Have you ever seen Scotland, PA? No, I have not. Essentially, it's Macbeth adapted for a suburban diner in Pennsylvania in the 1970s. It's mm. fantastic. It's very darkly comic. It has Christopher Walken. And it's instead of trying to become king of Scotland, Macbeth is trying to become manager of the fast food drive-in. Oh, that sounds great. It's incredible. And the three witches are three hippies, and he kind of hallucinates them, so he's not sure if they're real. Mara Tierney plays Lady Macbeth. So they, spoiler, they kill the manager by accident by dropping him into the fryer. So like he's handcuffed or whatever, and he falls into the deep fat fryer head first and a drop of the oil splashes lady Macbeth's hand and so the rest of the film she's like buying hand creams and trying to like get the spot out you know mm. so i won't call it a great film but it's amusing and it's bombastic which also fits with changeling that reminds me of another interpretation of Macbeth. um was the disney tv series from the 90s gargoyles oh absolutely yeah that same teacher from English Lit was very much in favor of Gargoyles because, as she put it, they actually got the history right. They expanded the story, but... Well, they, they folded in a lot of the historical Macbeth. Yeah. And they expanded it into the whole mythology of the Gargoyles, yeah. but... When we do a TV episode, which we undoubtedly will, that will absolutely be on the list. Yes. And it ties into fairies, so... You know. Yeah. Anyway, um, see the witches don't have to be mages. Yeah, is that it for Macbeth? Should I? Should I? Yeah, go I think, next... think that's it for Macbeth. Right. Yeah. So my next entry is "Perfume" by Patrick Zuskind, and this is—I guess you could call it speculative fiction because it's a pretty straightforward story. But then there's this one little fantastic element. It's set in pre-revolutionary France in the 1700s, and the protagonist is named. Jean-Baptiste Grenouille, which means frog. He has a superhuman sense of smell, which enables him to become a master perfumer. He's able to identify scents all across the city, can like pick out the smallest, tiniest notes of scent in a bottle of perfume, as well as tracking someone through the streets or like smelling where someone is from miles away. You know, he has this very clairvoyant sense of smell, clair olfactory sense, perhaps. But then he has no smell of his own. And that makes other people feel really unsettled around him. And he's kind of an outcast. People are unnerved by him and kind of shy away from him. And he becomes obsessed with gaining a smell of his own. So one night he smells the most beautiful thing he's ever smelled. And he follows it. And it turns out to be this teenage girl. So he murders her and attempts to process her body in order to preserve her scent and create a perfume from it that he can wear. And this becomes his quest. I think this is fantastic inspiration for a bogey in changeling terms. Oh, yeah. Trying to possess the, you know, the mix of sweat and glandular secretions that humans are so heir to. 
But yeah, it's a very lyrically written book. It's very lushly described. It was a major bestseller in Germany when it came out, and I think throughout Europe. They did make an adaptation. It's okay, but the novel is better. Anyway, the blurb is, Once upon a time in 18th century France, there lived a human monster unlike anything mankind has ever known. Enter the world of an evil genius, a murderer so depraved that only the most hideous of crimes could satisfy his lust. A killer who lives to possess the essence of young virgins, a vampire of scent, whose bloody, insane quest takes him beyond the boundaries of love and death. I think that's making it sound a little more um, romantic than it actually is, because it is a really gross novel. Mm. But it's good. It's very well written. And... It goes deep into the psychology of what that protagonist is like. We we had a request from uh, Victor Kinzer, friend, uh, host of Walking, one of the hosts of Walking Away from Acadia, and unfortunately, it was about uh, was talk about Nightbreed as a changeling inspiration, and the problem is neither of us have either read it or even seen the movie or anything. <laughs> I played. There's a role-playing game that rips it off, probably, called Nightbane. Some people thought, I knew people who thought it was an official thing, but I've looked into it and there's no connection, no official IP connection. It just seems to have ripped off the Nightbreed series. Uh, that's as close as I got, and I think that's closer than you, Puka, right? Probably, but I think that we can both acknowledge that Clive Barker is an author who should be on this list in some capacity, because you know his work yeah. is very much in that dark fantastic realm similar to stephen king he like stephen king some of his stuff would be fitting more than others yeah Clyde Barker seems more in the changeling yeah yeah, yeah yeah and i've heard good things about weave world uh, which also sounds like a good wait i think i might have read that one but that was oh. so long ago i don't remember so that doesn't really help i i did i read a lot in middle school but most of the yeah. memories of those stories are Clive Barker is on the list. Let's let's leave mm-hmm. it at that. So then the last one that I have is another one of my faves, and that is House of Leaves. I think it probably works equally well for Mage, but I think it also has changeling aspects to it. It's also the creation of the book is also very changelingy. So in the blurb, there's kind of you, you can hear a bit about the creation process. All right, so. Years ago, when House of Leaves was first being passed around, it was nothing more than a badly bundled heap of paper, parts of which would occasionally surface on the internet. No one could have anticipated the small but devoted following this terrifying story would soon command. Starting with an odd assortment of marginalized youth, musicians, tattoo artists, programmers, strippers, environmentalists, and adrenaline junkies, the book eventually made its way into the hands of older generations, who not only found themselves in those strangely arranged pages, but also discovered a way back into the lives of their estranged children. Now, for the first time, this astonishing novel is made available in book form, complete with the original colored words, vertical footnotes, and newly added second and third appendices. The story remains unchanged, focusing on a young family that moves into a small home on Ash Tree Lane, where they discover something terribly wrong. Their house is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Of course, neither Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Will Nevitson, nor his companion Karen Green, was prepared to face the consequences of that impossibility, until the day their two little children wandered off and their voices eerily began to return another story, of creature darkness, of an ever-growing abyss behind a closet door, and of that unholy growl which soon enough would tear through their walls and consume all of their dreams. So, yes, House of Leaves, I mean, I won't get into the whole creation process because 
there are probably super fans who could do that a lot better than I could, but it was this kind of orphaned text that was assembled over years by Marxy Danielewski and partially inspired by his sister, who's the lead singer of the band Poe. So there's like a tie-in musical album for this as well. But I like it because it starts with a very simple premise. There's a house that's bigger on the inside than on the outside and just kind of goes in 15 different completely wild and bonkers directions with it. It's simultaneously a satire of like academic writing. The story is about the filming of a documentary, but the story is being told through the pages of a journal which is then in turn through the pages of another journal, which is then footnoted by an academic editor. So it's mm. layers and layers and layers of story. And at each layer, there's almost different kinds of madness taking place. So at the core of it, I don't want to give too much away, but I will say that there are ties to the myth of the labyrinth in many different senses of the word. So that sort of space that isn't what it seems and the uncanniness of that kind of space lies at the heart of it. But then you have these obsessive characters and, you know, these emotionally damaged people kind of moving in and out of the story. So it's a very, it's an unsettling book. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far. I know people have called it horror. I would not call it horror, but it's definitely, it's definitely unsettling in a lot of interesting ways. Mm -hmm. So and it, it's well known for being very difficult physically to read because there's pages where the text goes in all sorts of directions and sometimes it's reversed, sometimes it's mirror image, sometimes it's upside down. The font changes, like there's pictures worked in, there's poems worked in. It's hard to call it a novel. It is a text that is deeply uncanny across lots of different axes. But yeah, one of my faves. Yeah, that's another one I need to read. Yeah. So that's our, I guess, 10-ish yep. books for inspiration. And then we wanted to, to make a, a tilt at the end. You want to talk about yeah. Lovecraft? Or... <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. So yeah, we want to bring up, we're thinking about Lovecraft. There's a few reasons. One, he was just such a terrible person, and he put yeah. that in his writing. There's definitely stories that would fit this theme, though. But also uh, our sister podcast, cousin podcast, Mage the Podcast. Really cool uh, aunt who comes over sometimes podcast. Yes, yes. Just did they release it yet? I can't remember. But they were doing another doing an episode around now about Lovecraft as well. Don't really want to step on those toes. Neither of us are huge Lovecraft fans, but I have read precisely one Lovecraft story, which is probably the least Lovecraftian of all of them. So, which, which was that one? The Color Out of Space. Oh, I thought that would be very Lovecraftian of them. Actually, when we interviewed Charlie Cantrell about Harbingers of Winter. There was one of the Fomorians was the, uh, was it Zlod, the Storm of Color? And that mm -hmm. I always kind of thought of as, oh, that's the color out of space from Lovecraft. But, so mm -hmm. go check out Mage the Podcast for their Cthulhu Mythos connections to Mage episodes. Yeah. And I mean, there's, I mean, I've read, there's another one I've read. I remember reading what's his dream cycle. Mm. It's, it's got, you know, cats on the moon and stuff like that. I mean, oh, excellent. All right. <laughs> That one's like a trip through the dreaming. I okay. put it less than a... I'll be the first to admit that I am not by any means a Lovecraft aficionado, so I don't I don't yeah. know the full breadth. Well, I, I haven't read most of the stories, but there's a few, one of them I read, I remember reading going, this is not horror or not even spooky. So it was, 
it was just it, it read like uh someone's very high level fantasy campaign it was interesting okay. but yeah shame you didn't stick with that but yeah so yeah this has uh been changeling the podcast you can find us on twitter at changeling cast you can email us podcast at changelingthepodcast.com uh website changelingthepodcast.com we're on Facebook as Changeling the Podcast, and we have a Discord that does not have a handy little link, but you can get to it from our website. Or in the show notes. Or in the show notes, yes. The show notes have been redesigned slightly so that the links to all of these social media will now be at the top of each episode's show notes in case your podcast platform of choice is cutting them off somewhere in the middle. Formerly, they were at the end. Now they are at the top, so ease of access. Mm-hmm. I've been Josh. I continue to be Puka for now. Yes. Or are we? What even are we? Who? Where? Why? Etc. Questions. Until next time, though, keep on dreaming. We'd like to extend our thanks for humoring us as we proceeded through this ramshackle list of spoopy inspirations. In particular, we'd like to send consensual hugs of squamous and eldritch delight from our tentacled appendages out to our patrons who make this show possible. Derek. Raz Kabooz, Sandjigger, Seja, and Terry Robinson. If you'd like to support us in our ongoing quest to provide you with Changeling the Dreaming content, please consider leaving a review of our podcast on the platform of your listening convenience. You can also visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast to donate and receive a squamous and eldritch hug of your own in the shoutouts at the end of each episode. Dream safe!